Hi. Good evening. Welcome to the National Academy. Hi, thank you. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the Academy, and I'd like to welcome you to the review panel this evening. It's the final review panel of the calendar year, um, but uh, I will remind you that the review panel starts up again in 2012 on January 27th um, with uh, critics Michelle Cohn, Anna Finnell Hunnigman, and Anthony Hayden Guest. So it's a wonderful lineup, and I hope you will join us. Um, you can always go online uh, to www.nationalacademy.org to see future public programs here at the National Academy. I'm going to introduce tonight's moderator of the review panel, uh, David Cohen, is the editor of artcritical.com and He's our partner in this endeavor, and we're very fortunate to have him. So, David, please take it away. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Um, raise your hand if this is the first time you've been to the review panel. Wonderful. Fantastic. Great to see some new faces. Thank you very much. Hope we entice you into becoming a regular. Let me just quickly tell you what the format of the evening is. We, uh, the panelists, who I'm going to introduce you to in a moment, uh, have hopefully all been to see the four exhibitions listed as those that we're covering this evening. We show a PowerPoint presentation, a quick visual reminder of the first two shows that we talk about. Then we discuss them among ourselves for a bit. Then the audience has a chance to let off steam, make some comments, probe the panel for some clarification if needed. Um, and then we repeat the exercise. And then we all disappear into the cold night air. So that's simplicity itself, hopefully, uh, the review panel. And this evening's proceedings and the past, most of the past eight years of review panels uh, have been recorded and are available for podcast, download, streaming, as you prefer, at artcritical.com slash review panel. So now it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening's panelists. From my far left, Ara Mergen is Assistant Professor of Italian Studies and Art History at New York University. He's a contributing critic to Art Forum, Art in America, and Freeze. In the past, we've also seen his writings in Modern Painters and other publications. And his uh, long-awaited book on De Chirico and Nietzschean philosophy uh, is due sometime next year from Yale. Karen Gover teaches philosophy at Bennington College, Vermont. Uh, she was the 2011 recipient of the John Fisher Memorial Prize in Aesthetics for her essay on Christoph Buchel and Mass Mocha, that controversy, which you may recall. And she's contributed art criticism to Sculpture Magazine, Ceramics, and she's a regular writer, I'm proud to say, for artcritical.com, as is David Brody, but his principal claim to fame is that he is an artist. In fact, his fourth solo show at Pierogi Gallery in Williamsburg opened last night. Uh, originally, it was actually supposed to open tonight, and very, very generously, all parties concerned, shifted the calendar so that David could uh, wear both hats in one week and be an exhibiting artist on Thursday, 
and uh, um, a, a critic on Friday. In the days when I used to work at the New York Studio School, uh, people said, oh, so you curate exhibitions and you also review exhibitions. And I said, yes, that's right. I spend half the week putting shows up and half the week putting shows down. <laughs> David is also, besides being a regular writer at Art Critical, uh, a contributor to Bomb Magazine, Cabinet, The Brooklyn Rail, and he has an interview published with Philip Taff in the uh, recently Irish Museum of Modern Art published uh, catalogue um, of uh, Taff's work. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panellists. Wonderful. Just a quick two thank yous, three thank yous. A thank you to all the wonderful staff at the National Academy who make this a smooth, effortless program. A thank you to Graham White, who does our recordings for us. And a thank you to my interns, uh, uh, Kristen Studioso, who prepared this evening's PowerPoint, and Molly Flannery, who's about to start the projection. So the first two shows we're looking at are Nan Golden at Matthew Marks and Jim Lambie at Anton Kern. Great. Well, <clears throat> Nan Golden, I have to confess co-panelists, that among the things that I like, that I love to look at um, are paintings in the Louvre and pretty young lesbians. So, <laughs> consequently, uh, Nan Golden and I feel like we're on the same page to some extent. Scopophilia, the scopophilia... In a way, it's a, it's a beautiful... Well, it is a beautiful word. I mean, we, we all love to look, and yet, of course, the, the term also has psychological connotations that uh, are akin, perhaps, to narcissism or voyeurism or some combination thereof, and which, perhaps, we, at least publicly, uh, prefer to distance ourselves from. Um, what are we left with, or what, what do we get from Nan Golden era? Um, well, two of the words that I would always use to describe her work, you've already hit on the head, narcissism and voyeurism, and we get that in spades. Um, I'll confess that um, uh, walking into the show, I was um, prepared to wield, wield those um, terms against her work, which I've always found to be um, sort of the visual equivalent of a kind of uh, whiny Jewish girl from Massachusetts with, with a lot of privilege and a lot of time on her hands. Um, she's most famous, of course, for her photographs um, in the 90s, um, which came out in a collection called The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which essentially document um, in an almost glamorous way uh, the kind of down-and-out bohemian scene of drug addicts and... Um, the fringes um, of the art world. And interestingly and fittingly enough, um, the slideshow that is included in the show is dedicated to Peter Huger and David Bonarovich, both of whom were, in addition to being lovers, um, famous artists in uh, the New York 80s and 90s art scenes, both of whom died of AIDS um, and with whom she was quite close. 
Um, so all of that said, I was prepared to um, find uh, the usual stuff. Um, what I found personally was, um, in addition to uh, this video, which rehearses, as you've seen, a lot of these, what seem, what amount in some cases to a kind of, uh, reminded me at least of a kind of art history class of comparisons. Mm -hmm. um, but the premise of the show, for those of you who don't know it, is, um, is that she was inside the Louvre uh, relatively recently when it was closed to the public and was thus able to see um, its collection essentially for herself, a privilege uh, for which all of us would be obviously eminently grateful and um, which she repays in obviously loving um, framing of uh, various works from Pontormo to Delacroix. Um, what is, I think, supposed to be kind of the revelatory um, and as you put it, uh, with the kind of portentous Monteverdi um, piping in the background, aha, a revelation of the show, is that lo and behold, so many of her own works from the past, um, even in their casual, offhand way, um, are formally reminiscent of these great poses from the history of art. And while visually stimulating and even fascinating as those comparisons turn out to be, um, it's not, in the end, to me, anything terribly profound. In the mm -hmm. end, it, it amounts to what I think is essentially the same kind of navel-gazily um, mm -hmm. uh, self-indulgence <laughs> to which her work has, has long kind of... Um, uh, in, in which it's long indulged. So right. visually mm -hmm. and brilliantly um, rich, exuberant, um, but uh, pretty much the same stuff for me. Yes, Karen, maybe another lesson to be learned from it, though, is, is apart from the uh, coincidence or uh, affinity between uh, her photographs and the old masters in the sense that she, uh, her photographs have old masterly poses, is I looked at it somewhat the other way around, that she was saying it's not just me that is fascinated by a kind of um, secret history. There's a, there's a sort of secret history in the paintings in the Louvre, that even if they have mythological or religious subjects ostensibly, underneath they are, like my photographs, a celebration of very special friendships between very beautiful people. But wasn't that um, sort of, um, how do I say this? I mean, I noticed that she was taking these famous and uh, amazing paintings and sort of focusing in and framing in on, on the genitalia. Right and on, on the on the on the um, on the sexy bits, and I thought, wow, you know, you're really um, you're not often. She obviously she's not showing the entire image, but just mm. honing in on certain parts, which I think might skew the story uh, quite a bit. Um, the other thing I was wondering about when I saw the show is I was wondering with this comparative uh, motif that she sets up, if she's trying to imply that she too is one of the greats who belongs in the loop. Yes. What do you think? Well, yes. They, yeah, I remember David, uh, do I think she belongs in the Louvre or do I think no, she's, she's, she's tele-implying it? Yes. I read a biography once of a famous actress um, who was on the, her honeymoon in Paris and her husband was an even more famous actor. And they were looking up at the Louvre at night and he was saying, I wonder if we could. And sure enough, he made some phone calls and they were admitted uh, late at night into the Louvre. So, um, yes, celebrities in the Louvre. <laughs> uh, is this for me? That's for you to run with. 
Well, it, it certainly grates a little bit the the inherent comparison of uh, of our of our you know one of our great contemporary artists being set up by the the the, the situation of the situation of greatness that of uh, you know being represented by a great gallery and being shown in great institutions and then being given this great opportunity to to go into the Louvre and take photographs. But um, you know. The, she says in, in, in the voiceover in the slideshow um, that um, something about um, it was the most profound experience of ecstasy of her life to be alone in the Louvre. And this is a photographer who's, who's famous for documenting states of ecstasy, <laughs> sexual, drug-induced, um, you know, just sheer self-performative, narcissistic, uh, self-love. Uh, and and the tragic aftermaths of those situations, in case, and that's legitimate, and she has legitimately you know, broadened the scope of photography, so much so that um, her audience now is not the people in this room or might be listening to this podcast. Her audience is uh, 18-year-old, uh, alternate, alternatively sexualized or alternatively gendered or alternatively just behavioral, uh, you know, Kids who, who see in her work a validation of their lifestyle and an aestheticization of her lifestyle. I mean, her work began also not for an art, art world audience, but for the people that she was documenting. They were slideshows, literally, for her friends. And, you know, something happened out of that that reinvented photography, and we have to give her credit for that. Uh, however, her, her, her great talent is not for uh, documenting eternally still, marble, cold, you know, oil-painted things on the wall. Her, her talent is for documenting the entanglements of life around her. And there is ample evidence of some new photography that, that's in the slideshow, particularly moving photographs of her lovers and her friends. Um, but we're, we're, we don't see the, the tragic part of the, the scope anymore. She's now successful. She's, re, she's gone through rehab. You know, she's it's, is, what does that mean to us? I mean, that's something we should all think about. Is it was, mm. was the voyeuristic aspect of her work the most important aspect? Now that she's, now that she's um, sober and, you know, uh, stable, you know, is it really interesting looking at these nice men in their nice gardens in Italy or wherever they are, or these, you know, pretty girls dressing up in these gilded rooms ready to go out to a nice party? Uh, you know, that interests me, I have to confess, that interests me less and probably interests most people less. But on the other hand, from what you say, there's a few uh, positive things to be drawn and also a few um, ethical caveats to, to your argument. I mean, first of all, uh, how wonderful it would be to get 18-year-old punks to go into the Louvre and to the Met. Um, so so my, I, I jump with joy at the thought can, that can, she's made a new, finding a new constituency. Can because, I just up on my thought of that? Yeah. Um, the reason I brought that up was that uh, what you brought up earlier about the, the hidden history in the Louvre of mm. transgender, bisexual love, gay love, um, even, even um, you know, all, any, every category, hermaphroditism of every interior mm. category between masculine and feminine that's there right in plain sight. It's rife in the middle of neoclassicism, in the middle of the revolution when, the, when uh, masculinity was being preached in, in classical painting. It's, it's even, you know, why is that there? A lot of people who will be seeing this show will be surprised to see that. 
wasn't, but it seems to me, I, I, I agree with your points, but it seems to me also that so much of the, the uh, if we want to put it in simple terms, the identity politics of what might be rescued from that of, of hermaphroditism is also offered up in a, in a very sort of coldly formal way, often a beautiful mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But um, I think what you were saying earlier is, is to the point, to the extent that um, these objects are as much the site of, of kind of formal um, reflection and, and delectation as they are for the meaning of their alternative kind of histories. And mm. um, something that David said earlier actually helped me think about it in a different way, which is that not necessarily that um, it, we might look at these comparisons that she set up not as a, as a way to necessarily exalt her own work, that is to bring it up to the high level of the great masters, but also to bring down, in, in, in a sense, um, a painting by Corbet or Contormo to the, the original, actually, person personal histories of the model that they might have. They're now sort of rendered timeless artifacts for us, right? Mm-hmm. But that it, you might think of it as kind of the girl with the pearl earring moment yes. in which <laughs> these uh, works are, are kind of brought back to a human dimension. To that extent, mm-hmm. um, I think you're right. I appreciate <coughs> that, that, that element of it. Karen, do you um, retrieve... Uh, yes, she focuses on the body parts. In fact, yes. she kind of cheats and crosses the Seine to go to, the, to, to Dorsey in order to... The, the Origine du Monde actually hangs mm-hmm. there. Oh, so, it's, so, so enamored is she by what's actually a very minor Courbet painting, but a sensational one, uh, that she'll... Mm-hmm. She bought it in the Louvre. She went to the, to the Musée d'Orsay. But uh, that piece of trivia notwithstanding. Um, does, she, does she actually... Do you, I mean, I, does she bring, do you think she could bring a new constituency to a love of old masters or an intrigue in, in the old masters? I'd, 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 they'd have to go to Matthew Marks and, you know, then get on a plane and go to the Louvre. I, you know, I don't, maybe. But, I mean, I guess I have to say, and this is partly in response to what, uh, what David, as I think, said about... You better use surnames for these, oh, this oh, end of the table, yeah. otherwise. <laughs> it's Brody oh, or Cohen. Uh, all right. What yeah. Mr. Brody said okay. about um, when, uh, about the sort of ecstatic moment that she had when she was in the Louvre. I have to say, I, you know, I was I, I was ready to be sort of cynical and, and annoyed and jaded by you know the sort of self indulgent character of her work, and I found myself actually believing her when she said that she was just overwhelmed. I don't know if it was the most ecstasy she's ever experienced, but that it was that she just was overwhelmed by the beauty of, of, of the moment, of, of the experience of being alone with these great works and having this kind of privileged access that they came alive for her in a way that they don't normally do. Um, and that she was then just a, a lover of images, which can be one meaning of scopophilia, not necessarily of dirty images, but just a feasting your eyes on images. And I actually found myself, um, maybe it was the Monteverdi that, I don't know, but I, I found myself kind of persuaded that she was being honest about, about mm. that. And, and I, I let myself sort of try to feel her excitement there, except I, I then was annoyed that the images of the images were always cropped in on, on the nipple or you know, mm. something. Yeah, I've I've never personally I don't have any problem with self indulgence if it if it if it um, yields a result that's for me an indulgence as well and I've never been in any doubt 
about her earnestness. Sometimes I've wished that the volume could be turned down a little on the earnestness. But in fact, um, no, I, I uh, David, I, I, um, I felt it was a genuine... Uh, she, you know, if you've gone through... The other point is that if, you've, if you have gone through rehab, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible message to give out to say that, you know, uh, the, the, the ecstasy of looking at great paintings is never going to be as good as the ecstasy of ecstasy. Because, uh, um, well... In chemical terms, yeah. maybe, but in spiritual terms, hopefully, you know, there is some positive well, and earnest message. I, you know, I can completely agree that, you know, uh, the raft of the Medusa is better than a cocaine-fueled orgasm. I mean, I'm, I, I do feel, I mean, I guess, I, don't know, I haven't really had recently, I have to confess. But, you know, it's interesting, she, wasn't, she didn't seem to have shot in the, in the Grand Salon. I don't mm. recall any images from there. Maybe she was given, uh, not given access, but... In, in, in the vein of giving access, the, I guess the, the show that I would have wanted to see was, was for her to be given access to the museum without supervision mm. and, and be allowed to bring her friends in. Yeah, party there, but... Yeah, have party, you know, you know have, the way uh, have sex the on yeah. the hermaphrodite. Right. I mean, that would, be, that would be the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, what, you know, you can't convey ecstasy, of, uh, ecstasy by photography, by photographing something that's already aestheticized. I mean, all right. she does is she crops it this way, she lights it harshly, she puts them in grids, she mm. yeah. fragments them, yeah. and it just looks desperate. I, you mm. know, I, I don't get any kind of... What, what you'd want there, really, is, is super cool photography, the kind mm. of thing that uh, Thomas Struth and right. Tim Davis or Sherry Levine do. do. You know, that's, yeah. that, and then you could make these compari- comparisons between the super crisp opticality of French salon painting and maybe her blurry, mm. you know, um, available light mm. snapshots or the other way around, you know, with, mm. with super, you know, Delacroix kind of painterly stuff and mm. very cleanly lit interior stuff. I mean, there could be all kinds of games you could play um, aesthetically. And mm. then there's a whole issue of the, of the mythology that we could get into. And yes. probably people know more about that than me, so I'll... I'll move on. I'd, I'd like to use the remainder of our time on uh, Golden to think about format um, because uh, it seemed to me a problem. I mean, I love, I actually enjoyed this show. I, I liked the imagery and I liked the feeling behind them. But I found myself troubled on two counts. One was the sort of merchant ivoriness of the slideshow. <laughs> I liked the good production value. Uh huh. That's going to come up later, I think, in our talk when we have someone with poor production value. Yeah, oh, okay. I sort of appreciated that she took some time and money. Oh, no, no. I, 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 again, I know I don't have any problem with the fact that it was uh, done well. It was just that the, um, that the, the, the sort of soft, soft message. Uh, yeah, soft porn. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, with more emphasis on the soft than the porn. <laughs> and um, uh, the, the other thing, though, was that, um, I mean, in that semicircular room with the mustard-colored walls, I thought that was rather gorgeous, the, the different scales of those. There's been some real sort of intelligent sort of interior decor thought in, in the, that presentation, whereas in the rest of the show, um, it seemed to be... I was bewildered that, that an artist of her stature should do something that's like a very kind of cheesy 70s uh, way of... Because it's not... Because the, 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 the twin images, old and new was a very, maybe a banal, but very forceful uh, right. leitmotif. But those sort of montages, which are not really montages, yeah. just it looked like a sort of economy job on framing, <laughs> where you uh, print six or eight images. Uh, 
did, did, would somebody like to speak up for those and say I'm wrong and it's it's something no, useful? I mean, I thought of uh, Dali's famous collage of oh, close-ups. Yes. Um, you know, formally they they look, but of course, you know, the the, the quaintness of the Dali is that it is a collage, it is a mock-up, it is mm. um, you can tell that it's been in cut and repasted, and and I think you're right that the the, the um, you know these said it's sort of saving money on framing or I don't know what it was it's, it looked rather uh, especially when we see uh, seen most of the images in the slideshow why, why not yeah, I why not you know I, th- I don't think Matthew Marks would spare money on framing I mean that's not the <laughs> issue here the issue is that if they could if they could make separate pieces of those and sell them each individually then they would do that I think what you know it, there's a logic to having for trying this format and what you know she's her work, her best work is, is sequential montages. So, can you make something that's that's on you know a wall piece that works that way? Well, okay. There's one with you know called hair, and there is they're all shots of hair. Great. There's one with back. They're all shots of backs. Great. But there was one that was called crazy, uh, crazy scary, and there were nine images. The first eight, reading left to right, were uh, you know Louvre artworks, and the last one was of, and they were all of of painful you know forbidding death mm-hmm. or some kind of transcendent version of death. And the last one was one of her shots of what looked like uh, a friend dying in a hospital, probably mm-hmm. you know, holding out. You just sort of see one, two hands touching, mm-hmm. and it's probably someone dying of AIDS. And so that piece is affecting. You can't, it can't not be affecting. So there is, I think there's potential in the, in the, in the project. I just, I, I have to say, I didn't even spend much time looking at the images on the walls because I thought it was just... Um, a desperate way to try to take the slideshow and turn it into something that you could hang mm-hmm. in the rest of the gallery. I didn't really even take them very seriously. I thought to myself that the, the slideshow was the work and that the, the pieces hanging were absolutely secondary and maybe just there so that they could be sold or something. Yeah, I, was, I, I too was left wondering whether or not these, the, the work were essentially kind of film stills from the video, or whether the video was kind of an explanatory extra to the works, and I think that that was, um, I mean, I, I, I tend to think it was the, um, the, the former, that the, that the, the video is essentially the, the main the work. Yeah, shot. that was the... Um, and can I make one more comment, too? Why, why, why the slideshow works so much more, be- much, uh, much better, because... Sorry, no, no I'm, I'm sorry, actually, we can't. I'm sorry, just quickly to say that the, the, the issue of the music in the slideshow has come up, and, and it, is, it, it's, uh, it is extremely important, that music. Mm. Uh, yeah. And you don't get that in the, in the works on the wall. And, um, you know, someone, there's a composer who composed that music, actually, for the, for yes, the piece. Yes, there's a the soundtrack. Case. And they, but then in the earlier also... works, she's appropriated work or borrowed work, uh, music, as far as I know. There are other credits in the slideshow that include editor and this mm-hmm. and that and the other thing. So these are collaborative works like cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the effect is collaborative between the different art forms. And, you know, it is hard not to get into a certain mood when listening to Monteverdi-like or Mahler-like music. Right. Uh, no, they were Monteverdi and Mahler. They were, in fact? There, there's a composer who did the incidental music. Ah, but yeah. then they also had, they Thank began you. with a chunk of, uh, I think it's the coronation of Popea. And then in the middle, there was some medieval music. And towards yeah. the end, there was a setting from, I think, uh, one of the song cycles. And there's some rather lush, yeah, lush romantic piano music. Mm. Was that the model? Or was that... uh, no, uh, I'm ashamed to admit I don't. I think it was Ravel or somebody. Okay, well, very or good. maybe somebody else. Feels. Thanks for clarifying that. Okay. Um, but the music is important. Music is gorgeous. Um, I, I felt it was like being in a, a cinema where you got the 
uh, you got the movie, and then in the corridor you've got uh, stills, and and and, and yeah. so I mean, it seems for somebody um, who uh, f- photography or already has the potential problem. I'm not going to open a big can of worms here, but I mean, um, for, I, I have. I mean, photography has that borderline uh, something that can be exploited positively or uh, or not, but it has that basic problem of being an applied art and a fine art potentially at the same time. So to me it seems very, very odd that somebody who's clearly on the fine art side of it would risk uh, the, make that sort of ontological risk, if that's, I'm going to use that word, because you've got, uh, when you've got stills and you've got the same images appearing in the slideshow, it's, it's got to detract from one or the other to have them both. Um, well, don't you think it's just an economic issue? That it's something that you can sell? Um, well, why not just have them for sale at the back or something? Um, <laughs> you know, or just, uh, you know, on a, a link. And, uh, I don't know. Maybe. So maybe. We, must, we should assume, though, that she's making an artistic statement. Yes, yes, I think I think, I think we have yeah. to assume she is, and even if she isn't. Well, well I think for, in terms of format, the, the the room with the comparisons between the, of the portraits yes. was fun, you know, and it mm-hmm. worked in as an installation, and it worked mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a different way than it would work in a slideshow, and and I and I enjoyed it. I don't think it was particularly profound, but it is mm. interesting to see these morphological, maybe characterological continuities between eras, and mm. uh, and. To see that we're all sort of being reincarnated all the time, mm. and, and culture mm-hmm. culture is being reincarnated all the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think it's time to move to Lambie. And look, uh, the lady made a, what's what's actually been made very, very often as a very sensible, practical suggestion. Let's look at the images again. Uh, and I'm afraid I I'm a kind of obstinate mule on this one. Um, we've been to see the shows. The PowerPoint gives us a reminder, and from there on, criticism has to go back to its original task, which is to describe ekphrasis. So, um, if you need the projection a second time, we are failing as critics, um, <laughs> because our our job is to is to generate a discussion that brings to the mind's eye everything that's being talked about. So with that in mind, let's be a little more ekphrastic co-panelists in how we tackle uh, how we tackle Jim Lambie. So Karen, um, I read that Jim has a background as a rock musician. Yes. And yet when I saw this show I thought, gosh, this guy has a very art world background. Um, why did you say why would you say that? Well uh, and there because, were photographs of rock musicians. In yes, there the were. There were. But there were zips and there were targets. Yes. And so when I see were. zips and the targets, yes. I think, aha, Art yes. History 101. Yes. Yes. What, what do you make of Jim Lambie? Rock star or art historian? Oh. Can, or can one be both? Mr. Cohen, I struggle with, I struggle with Jim Lambie. Um, um, I, I think some pieces, I think it was an uneven show. I think some pieces were more successful than others. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the sort of things that wasn't immediately apparent to me um, is that there's a kind of similarity between, I don't know if the, it's clear from the, I don't think it's clear from the, the images, it couldn't be, but the, the, the concentric circles that are brightly colored are actually regressing into the wall as this sort of conical shape that's about eight inches deep. Um, and it's uh, um, uh, placed above the faces of, in one case, I think, uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. 
Um, and, and so, and I actually overheard what I think was an art dealer explaining to a potential client that really it wouldn't be too difficult to buy one and install it in your apartment and we just have to use a little drywall and you could like get this fake wall. Um, but there's actually a similarity between those conical um, regressing um, concentric circles and the, the folded over corner pieces in that they both involve a, this kind of um, con, concavity and this layering of, of, of bright colors, right? But I, I have, and, and I think the large wall piece that he did, that's called something like Sunspot Orchid or something that has, it's a, 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 it takes up a, a whole wall and, it, and it's mirrored and it has these folded in corners, is, is sort of interesting and effective. But I have to say, the, like the, the balled up, um, uh, brightly colored t-shirts and the old pickle jars that's in yes. the corner, I just felt like I was in the gap. You know, I thought this, would be a good designy kind of commercial thing for um, a t-shirt store. And then the rolled up belt buckles, again, it's, it felt very commercial to me. Um, and I just, I just didn't know where I was. Well, Ara, presumably he is playing very consciously with a pop aesthetic, with, with, uh, with the pieces that Karen is, is distressed by. Um, do you, uh, do you, would you like to make a case for them? Um, <clears throat> I, I agree um, with the assessment this is a very uneven show. I think uh, both in terms of medium, material, uh, color, um, we had everything from folded large uh, metal um, slabs uh, arranged along one wall um, with a giant sculpture essentially wrought out of concrete into which were inserted flattened, a flattened actually suit of armor disarticulated and re-embedded in slabs of concrete um, next to um, an assembly of cast chairs um, into which concrete slabs have set and onto which one of these giant um, belt buckles, uh, excuse me, uh, belts, belts mm. metal belts and belt buckles. Non-functional belts. There is, yes, a, de a degree of kind of pop. You had the very kind of, in its inflated scale, you think mm -hmm. of Oldenburg, um, you, uh, I, the, the belt left me abs absolutely, um, I had no idea what to think of it until actually one of the gallery assistants told me that, well, um, he's a rock and roll guy and what's most important thing for a rocker is his belt. And I, this was news to me that, um, that there was a connection between, um, the rock and roll. Because and if you're a rocker, you have to belt it out. You have to belt right. it out, yes. Is it, David, is it because you have to hang your guitar on the belt, or is it because you, uh, is there something kinky that goes on with the belt? What is, why are belts important to the rock thing, and roll? The thing that I don't get about those belts is that they're, they're like disco-era belts. They're mm. shiny. You know, the, the big one has is, is, is got kind of glitter, and it's a shiny resonance. The Dylan on the wall is that era, mm. right? No, mm. it's not, is it? I mean, that the, the one under the Dylan piece, which... Technically, they're separate pieces, but they're installed as if they're the same piece. Is uh, it seems to me that's a, like a 1980, maybe 1978 faux faux leather belt, and and the Dylan shot is from 1965, and he's wearing kind of raggedy clothes. And if he was wearing a belt, it would be real leather. Mm -hmm. And and the Mick and Keith one uh, also there's a belt underneath that one, mm -hmm. and that's you know again it's you know that photo is from like. Sticky Fingers is 71, and the, and the belt is just a completely different era. 
Uh, you know, <laughs> both of those guys might have worn that kind of belt at some point in their, you know, It may be that your careers. intimacy with the archaeology of fashion well, and rock is, it is might more be, nuanced than his. It might be that it's also different in Glasgow. I don't know. I mean, and, and for his generation. Okay, so he comes up and he's a, he's a rocker, but mm-hmm. those, Dylan and, and the Stones are already, you know, he's younger than me, the Dylan Stones are already kind of ancient history. And it's all, mm-hmm. maybe it's all getting mixed up there. And, he, and I think that the, the essential message of his work and of this show is, Hey, let's you know art. It, 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 there's a kind of a politics of fun about this work. I think I think he is political in a way, and uh, I do remember the first seeing the first uh, tape floor installations in New York, in, uh, whenever that was, like mid '90s or something like that. And um, I just had this sense of incredible joy, uh, and it was it was like here's this here's. Someone like Richard Long, but but with a sense of fun, with a sense of joy, and he goes instead of going out to the frozen wastelands of eternal time, he's going into a gallery in, in the middle of an urban situation, inside of a room, inside of a culture, and he's doing you know something like that. And uh, so so I think that his instincts are really strong, and and I think he does have a message that he wants to give, and maybe he's tried a lot of different things that don't not ever not everything works. The belts for me, in and of themselves, the the, the rolled up ones. They do have this kind of, uh, well, they, the, the titles refer to, to records, and they look like old LPs in a way. You can almost pull them out and, and play the music, and it's kind of stored inside there. And the vortexes, I think, are supposed to work in a similar way. They the, rhyme visually, right? The belts are coiled, and they protrude, and the vortices yeah. are concave. And, yeah. yeah, and then you're looking at the, vortice, the, the one of those vortexes, and the colors just draw you in the way that... Maybe when you were 15 and smoking bongs and listening to a record, you might have been looking at this LP, or at least me, and you might have been looking at this LP and being drawn into this, into the, the, the landscape of the music, you know. And that's, mm. I think that's he wants to make, he wants to find a way to bridge these two worlds, the visual and the ecstatic, dancing party thing. I think that also applies to the Sun Orchid piece, the the large wall piece, which is very elegant in certain ways, and and it and it looks like a flower. It looks like a series of flowers. It it has that same kind of Warhol, Ellsworth Kelly, um, um, you know, Morris Lewis kind of pure pigment as substance equals mm-hmm. flowers. Isn't life beautiful? Well, and I uh, like that the vortices are actually accidentally created by the four corners, you know, because there are these squares with the corners put in and then they're stacked next to each other. So then there's a hole where all the four corners would have met, but they're all turned in going the other way. And the last, you know the, I mean? and the last layer is white, so it goes right into the wall, and, and, yeah. it's, and it's really quite beautiful, actually. Yeah. But I, I still feel that, I mean, then the major surface is mirror, and so you sort of feel like, well, maybe this should be, it's kind of, it feels inert in that space. It would be great in a club. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's, and I just want to point out one thing. I did, I did Google sun orchid because I, I wasn't sure if it was a real flower. And it turns out to refer to this uh, sun orchid elixir that, that crops up in uh, some Edgar Rice Burroughs tetralogy about some planet. And, and the elixir is a very rare substance that's fought over. I mean, wars are fought over this thing because one draft of this will uh, arrest the aging process. So, so that is part of the message of the party, you know, the party message, maybe the slightly tragic message of dressing up in these in these shiny belts and all of that. All right. So there's a, there's a occult uh, connector between Golden and Lambie, perhaps. Um, I think it's a good moment to bring in our audience to get some comment on the two shows that we've oops, opened with. Karen is the lady with the roving mic. Please wait for it so that we can definitely all hear you and also record you for posterity. Um, but don't feel inhibited by that. 
<laughs> I felt I I felt in Nan Golden's work formerly emotional and this work is more psychological. I'd just like to hear your thoughts about the difference between emotion and psychology. I'm not sure what you mean by that distinction. Could you elaborate a little bit? For me, it's very distinct. It, okay. Something that activates brain activity versus heart-centered. Uh, okay. Yes, actually, uh, Sanford Schwartz, I was just reading his uh, review of de Kooning on the train coming here, and um, he, he opens with precisely that distinction between the psychological and the emotional, which struck me as odd, because I must say I've always kind of put them together. But um, are, are others, uh, do others share a strong dichotomy of the emotional and the psychological, which could have bearings on Golden? Well, I would just point out that, that there are quite a few images of the story of Cupid and Psyche, and that's a, that's a love story, a requited love story, unlike some of the other ones that, of myths that she cites, like Narcissus and uh, um, Theresius. I don't know. I don't know mm. That was an unrequited one. But anyway, she talks about unrequited love. And if, uh, but Psyche and Cupid end up together. They're married in, in heaven. So, uh, why, so I, I don't really know the etymology, but the word Psyche is, refers to the mind, and yet this is a love story. So what is that about? Psyche's soul, yeah. Yeah. Psyche is soul, yes. Why do we use it? Why do we use it to refer to the mind now? Because uh, malapropism. Of, that's all. Of, I think it's sort of migrated in terminology. I mean, Heraclitus even uses psyche. Psyche essentially means. It also means breath in ancient Greek. Yeah. It's your the life. Well, it might be worth thinking about why it has migrated. It's, across, it's migrated across this this barrier. But actually, when when psychologists talk of psyche, they're not talking about the brain. They're talking about the mind, mm -hmm. and so brain mind would also then map to the distinction. So, uh, but yes, emotion, viscerality, etc. I think we can get even though we do have two philosophers and two amateur philosophers on the panel, um, we might want to not go too deep there. But um, and psyche and more don't do have a difficult moment in their relationship when somebody pours some wax over somebody's <laughs> chest, which is uh, uh, possibly something for Golden to pursue in the next uh, <laughs> installment. Um, uh, some more comments, please, on, on either show. But uh, let's start with, yeah, either show. Well, to me, um, the uh, Nan Golden show was having to do a lot with these archetypal things, you know, that almost like Rembrandt, like you, you, you saw, you, you knew that person. Mm -hmm. And then Nan Golden picture was almost like, oh, it's still around, you know, it's still alive today. And, and that's what it reinforced for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really torn on the one hand by the insight that I think she was asking us to have, which is that there's a kind of timelessness to human experience, to human uh, love interests, to our love of looking, our love of looking at purient things, our, our fascination with the naked female form, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and I, you know, part of me wants to agree with her and have this kind of humanist moment of yes, there is a timelessness here. And part of me w was very nervous about making that jump to these, from these decontextualized works, right, and, and, and having them cropped in on just certain parts of these paintings 
to the, the implicit message that you know these you know this is all just sort of looking at 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 uh, na you know naked uh, people embracing and and, and such. Um, I, I find myself also wanting to say no. You know, maybe you know what what Nan Golden is up to when in her photographs of her naked friends and lovers is not necessarily essentially the same thing as what these painters were doing. And and I and I enjoy that tension between the kind of insight into our kind of common humanity across time, and my desire to also be very cautious about making that leap. Yes, just next to. Can you use the mic? I would tend to agree with you in the sense that her own portraits seemed very, very, the people were very specific. And you seemed to make eye contact with the people. And in that way, they were very contemporary. Whereas the images that she chose were idealized and not specific. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like it was a contrast very much with our time mm -hmm. and uh, other things in history. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's that's a, that's a convincing. Yes. Good. Some some more comments on either show? Perhaps yes. Uh, please wait for the mic if you wouldn't mind. Thanks. Karen, I I you said that they were t-shirts in the jars? Uh, it's my understanding is that they, they were all yes. t-shirts. I, I, I didn't know that. I thought that they were underwear. Well, and so that, that makes a lot. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense for that. I mean, I, that's what you know the the Hanes underwear, the striped underwear that you buy. And I thought those were all underwears, t-shirts. Yeah, that's strange. I did. I did kind of wonder when I first saw them if they might be not only underwear but dirty underwear, yeah. thinking that it was. I mean, he's he had these. He's has these. You know, Fontana one-liner pieces. So why not a Manzoni one-liner piece? <laughs> uh, that's kind of that's kind of seemed like where it was going. But, uh, but then you realize that the rest of his aesthetic is pretty clean and shiny, so I figured they'd be clean. Yes. Yes. You've seen the show by the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, the lady in the front. Please wait for the mic, if you would. One thought I had when I was looking at Nan Golden's work is that there's a certain amount of, I guess the word might be commoditization, where... When she's taking these works and she's making reference to them, she's essentially being a repackager. I mean, we sort of accept appropriation and all these other things, but in a way, she's using it more like a commodity. You know, that you can buy a, a box of Kleenex or something and then use it as Kleenex, and it's sort of the original thing. There's no consideration in a way. So I wondered what your thoughts were about that. A commodity, making a commodity out of these, art, out of these works? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the, the word, the word uh, one word that's com come out is, is a decontextualization. That they are, I think commodity is right to the extent that they've been reduced to, to things that can be simply exchanged one for the other, um, whereas each, each one is, is, she has been ripped out of a history in which it's embedded um, and, and thereby um, essentially become a vehicle of, of kind of casual formal comparison. Um, to the extent that commodity, I mean, to the extent that these are actually um, now photographs that are commodities of original works, um, they are literal commodities, right? She's rendered them sort of things to be uh, the reproductions now. And that perhaps opens up another kind of aesthetic can of worms. But 
Um, I don't know if anyone else. I mean, the, I'm not sure. I would use if appropriation I got rather than commodity. Appropri it's appropriative. Yes, I don't think. I don't think as a result of them, we can run out and buy a pontomo. So, I mean, I therefore don't <laughs> really see how it's a commodification, other than perhaps that it renders it equal. I mean, the the camera equalizes the different painterly textures over the centuries as uh, pretty faces, pretty bodies. I mean, I, thought, mm. I mean, she made she made Rembrandt's Titus look like a, um, an Elizabeth Payton um, because it's it became, you know. Uh, it is about doomed youth rather than, well, of course, Titus was a doomed youth, but uh, um, Rembrandt didn't know it when he painted it, but uh, perhaps well, he did. The, well, I mean, if for, as for commodification, I mean, I, I would think the, the, really, the bigger issue is, is she uh, commodifying, you know, the sufferings of her friends at times? Mm, mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Or as I suggested, merchant ivorizing them. Uh. Uh, Somewhat, but 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 that's to detract from. She she's an artist who has a very distinct palette and and mood, and it's a very beautiful one. I think it's very elegiac, and um, um, it's very rare for an artist in any medium to 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 achieve just that amount of uh, of intense, meaningful style. So I've got to take my hat off to her and say I, she gives me some pleasure. Well, it's, you know, she took a lot of formal and uh, artistic risks in this show, and that's all to the good. And mm. some, I think, some good things came out of it. So, uh, let's give her the keys to well, some other. Places. What, for, what formal risks do you see having been taken? I didn't. I really didn't. I find I found it more rather that the risks are conceptual ones yeah. rather than formal ones. Mm -hmm. um, well, we talked about the, the the sequential, uh, you know, collaged uh, prints. Um, that's, that was a huge risk, uh, and then apparently it's not, it's not come off it too well failed. for most people. <laughs> so it's risky. Um, uh, uh, you know, well, the whole the whole notion of, of including things other than the, the photographs of her friends. Yeah, I think what you said earlier about the idea of um, uh, the juxtapositions being um, essentially very interesting but banal was um, at the same time is, is significant to the extent that, the, that oftentimes the formal resonances between her friends and these great works were just that, sort of interesting and not terribly deep. But the conceptual idea that the, that the whole installation and the show opened up that, um, that in fact throughout the 1990s and, 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 and up until today that she's been making these works that she didn't know had precedents in the past and that the, she there then thereafter finds is perhaps the greater upshot of the show rather than kind of the formal gambits of these comparisons which seem to me oftentimes yes. beautiful but facile in a certain sense. But so usually when one has an ecstatic experience in an art museum it would be the, the sheer otherness of what one's experiencing and yet it seems perhaps from to conclude from what you're saying her ecstasy is wow there's me. There's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, th th yes, at the back, please. Yes. And if you would wait for the mic. Well, maybe Nan Golden, this is my take. I was thinking that she was saying that all great works of art are contemporary. All oh, right. I'll buy that. Thank you. I like that idea. Um, Drew, and then we'll move back to the... No, you can't. You can wait for the mic. 
I'm just wondering if there's a, a trend afoot in terms of validation, artists seeking validation or using old masters, not just artists but critics alike. Um, the recent revelations sort of contextualizing Maplethorpe within a particularly like classical tradition. Um, you were saying Nan Golden may not have known that she was doing this until recently. Was Maplethorpe aware that he was doing it? Um, what about Kehendi Wiley? and uh, some of the recent uh, paintings um, mirroring a certain kind of old master um, poses, and even the recent showic agosian of, uh, it was slightly different, of kind of suddenly placing certain uh, artists from the 60s um, into this context of Russian avant-garde artists, something that I don't think uh, critics or, or, or historians would do uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, I think I do think you know some Maplethorpe's classicism is a very recherche one, and you know he's a he's a formalist in a certain sense, isn't it? Right. and I think the point of in some ways the the revelatory aspect for Nan Golden is that her images are these casual extempore um, registering of the world around her and her friends, and yet lo and behold, um, uh, they happen to in their casualness and offhandedness. Um, happen to reenact a very carefully um, and canonical, canonically established um, work. And, and so I think there is a difference there with it, that her formalism in that sense it was not intentional. Um, it's retrospective, retroactively intentional, and that there, therein lies the conceptual premise and, and frisson of the show, basically. Right. Good. Let's move on to part two, then. So with Katya Sanchibanez, we now have, in a way, for the first time this evening, um, an artist um, giving us an unmediated product of her hand. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, in a way, shifts the register from part one to part two of, of the, the, the pairings of shows that we um, are examining this evening. Um, and I think some very interesting uh, contrasts between these two shows uh, will emerge. We'll nonetheless hopefully try to give a little time to each show and then perhaps spare, if we do so briskly, perhaps there will be some time to really get some comparison between them. But um, Karen, Katya Sanchibanez, um very, uh, very obsessive, um, perhaps, a very uh, structured, a very uh, rhythmic, and uh, some would say algorithmic approach. Yes. Um, how, how, uh, how, in, how much was for you there a pleasure in the result, or how much was there uh, a fascination with the process, mm -hmm. or was there no pleasure or fascination? There was some pleasure and fascination, but not as much as would have maybe would have hoped it for um, it, um, I mean my immediate thought especially when I saw the the, the pencil on the column that was in progress and and she came back daily to work on it a little bit was was Saul LeWitt right so there's you know the drawings in situ um, this algorithmic uh, sort of um, very obsessive um, repetitive uh, feel to it it's very different from Saul LeWitt however insofar as um, these are sort of done freehand. 
Uh, there's not actually, from what I understand, um, a precise uh, uh, rule that is being followed. She's doing it sort of just at, at, so that the patterns, what I found interesting was that the patterns aren't actually patterns insofar as there isn't an actual repeat. They just are, look as if they um, are a, a precise pattern. And, and there's a, a couple of them that I actually found really beautiful, especially because these these sort of the one there's one in particular that we saw an image of that it looks much more beautiful in person that um, is these sort of fern like or, or sort of little floral um, sort of shapes that are repeated and it looks almost like a textile um, but uh, and then you realize that that you know it's 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 irregular but it just gives the illusion of regularity um, and and I'm, I, I started thinking of Kant um, because I'm a philosopher I have to um, and so in the critique of judgment that sort of foundational work in aesthetics he he says that wallpaper uh, that he mentions wallpaper in his list of of things that that cause us to respond. Uh, with great pleasure um, because of the sort of scrolling foliage that is sort of gives us this, this sort of it looks like there's a pattern or something proposed of happening but we can't quite put our finger on what's going on and I thought yes okay now I, um, I, that's working for me um, some of them just so, seemed so fiddly and obsessive especially the pencil ones I was left sort of struggling to, to kind of um, uh, enjoy them. Uh, David, this degree of fiddly obsessive obsession, uh, fuss and fiddle, um, it, can't, <laughs> it can't simply be a byproduct or uh, an incidental. It's presumably crucial to the aesthetic, do you think? Labor intensity. Is there an aesthetics of labor intensity at play in uh, Sancho Banez? There might be a morality of labor, of labor intensity. Mm. I've known her work for something like 15 years, and when I first saw it, she was painting these very rigorous, disciplined, uh, small monochromatic paintings of things like uh, knots in wood or pine cones. And, um, you know, they were not ingratiating in the least, but they were definitely serious. And, um, and then she had this breakthrough sometime in the 90s where she, she began to think abstractly about how to structure the space of a painting and make internal divisions within it, but preserving uh, some of the natural motifs from, the, from, his, from her work with, with, with directly, uh, direct observation, but abstracted. Um, the, the painting, I think it's called Hidden, Hidden Version or something that you were talking about, Karen, that you liked, uh, is... Um, you know the the motif that that repeats in somewhat unpredictable ways in that painting is kind of like a fan palm shape, and depending on how it's it's mirrored across the seams, it, it, it's either in phase or out of phase. If it's in phase, then it looks like sort of sound waves. When it's out of phase, it begins to actually create it's an illusion of a spiral, and and there's also a lot of room around these incidents for the eye to sort of uh, absorb all of these variations and to enjoy them. Uh, most of the rest, well, I guess all of the rest of the paintings in the show are, are, are of a very different nature, and, it, and it's more like what she was originally doing in, uh, uh, with, the, with the obsessive paintings of the knots, uh, in that they're, you know, she sets herself a task, and she fulfills it, and there's, there is very beautiful variations of the hand within, but they're somewhat overwhelmed by the, by the impressive structure. It's, it's a grid structure, but it's not the least bit meditative. It's it's almost like a, uh, it feels very, uh, I, may be, I may be projecting here, but especially the black and the, and the black and the white painting, it feels very Catholic to me. 
and she is French and she's Spanish and she has this earnestness about what she does that reminds me of the sort of the, the abandon of, of the sort of a romantic abandon to a, to a cause of the French and the, and the religious zeal of the Spanish. And it, and it really feels um, that black and white painting for all of its mm-hmm. incredible visual stimulation is, it, it's airless because where there, you know, it, it alternates black on, black figure on white, on red ground and then red figure on black ground and there's something like 200 or, or more cells that mm-hmm. do this. So you you have to breathe you have to breathe solidness. You don't ever get air to breathe in that painting. Um, so uh, it just seems to me that in this show, Katya has gone back to this to a different kind of um, idea about painting. I think maybe a transitional show. Uh, the the work that she had done previously had the usual motif was grass like blades, and there was delectable color, and there was air, and there was movement. Uh, there was also all kinds of uh, more wider suggestion of uh, sexuality. They sometimes they read like pubic hair or wounds or fire. Uh, they could also read like uh, the sort of the in graphic graphic novels the kind of sh- jaggy shading that creates these very uh-huh. rounded forms. Uh, so they were sexy, and and I'm sure if anyone here read the Brooklyn Rail Review, the one thing you remember is how she talks about having uh, uh, to have sex every day and, and not, not just ten minutes. So she, so this is her. This is her. The way that she presents herself, um, more French than Catholic, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps in that <laughs> case. Um, okay. Anyway, I'll leave yeah. No, there. no, no. Uh, that's that's. Uh, uh, but that, but that, Ara- that element is somewhat missing in the show for me. Uh, okay. Right. Right. Um, so Ara, wallpaper and not enough sex is is the is what you, is the ball that you have uh, been passed <laughs> here. They do. It's it's interesting that you mention wallpaper. I mean, because of the relentless symmetry, they risk the wallpaper, right? I mean, I'm like liked wallpaper. Let's just say, you know, wallpaper isn't necessarily bad. And well, also, it also puts me in mind of Ruskin, uh, similar to Kant. The the finding the figure in the uh, he wasn't allowed to look at art, or well, he wasn't allowed to play with toys. So as a kid, he looked at the. Uh, threads in the carpet and, and played little games with that. So there's something of well, that. Well, I mean, leaving, leaving Kant aside for a second, the title of the show is, from, is inspired by Rousseau, right? So what more sort of natural philosopher could we have in a certain sense of kind of this idea of the, the solitary wanderer finding in nature um, the sort of the, the self and... Um, for me, the, the works are sort of um, uh, Agnes Martin meets Vija Selmin's on a safari. Um, yeah. And um, there's I. Some tribalness. There's a little, the there's, there's some tribalness. Um, the, the column was sort of Saul LeWitt goes on safari, um, which, I, you know, I, I, I uh, as, as David introduced, I mean, this is all about craft, right? I mean, if you're. If you're left cold by installation and conceptual art, if you don't want to run to the wall text the second you get in the gallery, you want to actually look at the work, this is the show for you, right? I mean, she has crafted these things. She has wrought them. And um, she, there, are, there are points um, in the drawings, which um, the drawings are actually all in graphite, um, in which what looks like a repetitive symmetrical pattern is in fact reversed and, and alternated. I mean, she's really, um, she has thought about um, the way these things are laid down on the paper. I thought it was also um, very telling and interesting that this work, um, The Other Side, which is um, one of the few um, deeply, brightly colored works in the show, 
um, looks like it's a lithograph. I mean, it's framed as if it were a print, but is in fact a drawing of ink. Um, so there's a real kind of carefulness. Um, and they, uh, perhaps of all the works that we've seen, they, they reproduce the worst because they are so subtle in, in terms of their material, the red path, um, which is made with um, evident flash, which is evidently a kind of matte acrylic-based material. Um, so um, some of the nuances of, of these works are very much lost in reproduction. Mm, sure. And totally. I, w I will say that, um, that around the corner in the same gallery yeah. are four paintings by um, Dean Monogenes, mm. um, which I must admit held my attention for far longer and with much greater interest. I think they're wonderful paintings. There's these very brightly painted acrylics on wood panel of what looked like sort of California modernist architecture. Um, as one of the gallery assistants brilliantly put it, um, it's sort of California modern meets X-Files. Um, uh, they're wonderful sort of four small paintings, and they really repay looking. So if you didn't get a chance to see them, you should. Not to take away from Katya's. No, I, I felt that actually those two shows um, helped each other. I mean, uh, that... Um, uh, the, the Dean show sent us back to, to, to look for a, a more sci-fi kind of narrative in mm. the, the, sh the sheer nuttiness and obsessiveness um, um, of, of Katya. But um, uh, I think that there's maybe some contemplative oceanic quality in, in Katya, which is a contradiction to what David's saying, I, I, but not one that I'm going to forcefully argue. I mean, I think you're right um, that this show is less... Uh, some less for the eye to sink into and more a, troubled. A, I was trying to point out that there's a range in her work yes. generally, but it's not so much on display in this show. And mm. there are some, uh, there are a couple of drawings, I think, mm. that are maybe my favorite pieces in the show, that uh, won't, that play with uh, pencil weight density yeah. and do more in terms of dividing the grid into some more quadrilaterally symmetrical mm. kind of play that begins to move in the direction of. Uh, Arabic mosaics or Persian carpets mm. or that sort of thing, yeah. and and uh, in contrast to the big paintings, which are just grid, period. You know, maybe a couple of stripes in the middle of them. Uh, so, and 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 the way that she uses the pencil um, in those two drawings, and, and a couple of drawings, let's say, uh, you know, they begin to shimmer. The the surface begins to shimmer, almost like a, um, a Dan Walsh or or something mm. like that, and. Uh, you can really enjoy it. There's one drawing that, that uses a motif where she's really using the side of the pencil instead of just instead of mm. filling in the the sh you know shading the shape, mm -hmm. and when she's using the, the pencil as a direct marking tool, uh, she really extends the range of that, uh, and you can move you can move very close up to that drawing and, and see these little the, each little square has these kind of fir tree motifs coming in from all angles and making this circular mm. pattern, and you step back and there's hundreds of them, and they form larger patterns and larger patterns and uh, that is very engaging stuff and, and the fact that they are handmade and she's sitting mm. there making these, these drawings is incredible. Yeah. I mean they don't, they, you can't print those out. I would, I would not describe her as a conceptual artist but these are nonetheless very ludic works they're about play and they're about setting rules for herself which she then mm -hmm. follows so it's, it's sort of an, an internalized conceptualism it's not, it's not the, like the conceptual art that looks out to other rules and systems, but it's it's setting her own rules and yes. her own systems, and 
channeling and, and sort of funneling a sort of vision through her own obsessiveness. But, and I guess that's where I struggle a bit with it on principle. I mean, as the, as the title, Journey of a Solitary Painter, indicates, um, this is about, a, uh, this is the, the, um, the result of a certain kind of experience that she has alone mm. in her studio making these obsessive uh, patterned uh, works. And so I feel that I'm being asked to witness her obsessive sort of process rather than being asked to share in an experience that the results of that process are going to give to me. And for me, this is a very crucial distinction. And, um, and uh, I didn't always feel as though I was let in on the, the, the sort of insularity of the, of the, the process and the, and the sort of um, obsessive character of, of the work. I just have to comment on the, on the title because it's come up a couple times. You know, that title would work really well as a Sean Landers show title. You know, it, 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 it begs to be read ironically, but she means it quite earnestly, and, and it, it really doesn't work for me, uh, except that she perfectly sophisticated and knows exactly how it's going to read, and that's her choice. It's an interesting choice. But I think Karen makes a crucial point because um, she does fit into a zeitgeist in which many, many artists, not to put you on the spot, but you included, um, do uh, uh, create work out of uh, a very um, uh, focused, um, uh, algorithmic, uh, intense, uh, playful kind of uh, working within its own rules kind of um, intensity. But... um, it's true that uh, there's a certain uh, coolness or even coldness in Katya that it's uh, in, in Sanchi Benes that um, uh, she is doing that thing, but it, it creates something akin to um, some of the ethnographic things that, are, that have been mentioned rather than um, really necessarily drawing us into a strange universe. Well, and again, if, if some of those grass motif paintings were on view, right, okay. we would be having a different discussion. Okay, okay. I see them as sort of icons of an obsession rather than, um, what would the opposite of the, an icon, of the, but would, rather than a sort of a, a field of obsessiveness. If that, does that work? Do you see, uh, <laughs> we'll work on don't, it. Don't look at me. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 in other words, what she does then produces something that signifies an yes. obsessiveness rather than something that... Um, simply is obsessive. Well, yes. what is obsession? Obsession is, an obsessive is someone who can't stop working and doesn't know when a piece has ended. Her work is really clearly has a beginning, first middle, and an end. So yeah, it's not the right word. Yes. Um, it's forceful, um, it's rigorous, it's disciplined, it's intense. It's intense. Intense, intense yes. Okay. Um, well, how intense, how obsessive are we with McClelland? Who would like to jump in on McClelland? We've all, we've all started on a show. Ara? Sure. Yeah. Well, the show actually starts before you get in the gallery, interestingly enough. Um, some of the silk screens, um, which are really the most playful aspect of the show, um, uh, were plastered on uh, next to the gallery door. I didn't even realize that it was part of the show until I got up um, into the gallery, and they are <clears throat> part of... Um, as you walk into the gallery, at least, or at least as I did, um, you saw uh, 
propped up next to some of the works, a folder that said mergers and acquisitions. And I thought to myself, well, Jesus, they're certainly not publishing their stock options for everyone to witness. So, but, and yet that title seems to resonate with um, these combined fused um, portraits that, she'd re that uh, she's rendered, which, for those of you who don't know, um, uh, have overlaid um, essentially Google-searched images of everyone uh, including, timely enough, uh, Silvio Berlusconi and Rupert Murdoch, uh, Anita Bryant and Lady Gaga, um, Tammy Faye and Newt Gingrich, uh, uh, Ahmadinejad and Sarah Palin. Um, so there, uh, these were, um, these silk screens were on the street before you even get up to the gallery. And so these are the mergers and acquisitions that she's, um, the images that she's merged together. Um, the rest of the show is, for all of its painterliness and exteriority and exuberance and, again, things that have been wrought with her hand, is also a deeply conceptual show. Um, it looks like gestural, abstract, expressionist painting, but there is a trope or several tropes sort of unifying the show, which you really have to get into um, before you can be steeped in its meaning, uh, a number of which include... Um, uh, these f video stills which you saw, uh, which look again at I Dream of Jeannie uh, and Bewitched um, and Wonder Woman, um, which are projected in the same small uh, sort of cubby um, of space as uh, Hans Namath's famous video of Jackson Pollock painting and Eve Klein's uh, using women as human um, brushes, which are sort of distorted um, and projected onto a separate screen, and then her own paintings, which are in the larger gallery itself, um, a number of which are based on um, aspects of popular culture and um, what evidently, and I didn't even know this, was what was called the Roxanne Wars of, I believe, the 1990s, um, when there was a series of uh, 80s, when there were a series of songs, rap songs put out um, That's right. that responded to um, each other. Um, and so they were carried out on the airwaves in New York over months and months, and they were called the Roxanne Wars because these rap artists would respond to each other in songs. And so she is, McClellan has conceived of the show in some ways as a kind of response. It's called um, Left, uh, which responds to her own earlier show um, a couple of decades ago called Right. Um, it's kind of a, a response to herself, but also to the other artists. It also has feminist themes, um, but uh, maybe you feminism guys have... and rock and roll, Karen. Now, um, yeah. does, so is is this, the, the uh, Ara has, has has beautifully, ecstatically described yes. for us this yes. plethora of um, strategies, options, um, appropriate language for the uh, mergers and acquisitions, perhaps, but also. Um, Yes, it's it's maybe a little bit of one of those shows, kitchen sink and all. Or is it is it an artist hedging her bets with different things, or is it an artist just mm. overflowing with uh, uh, expressive possibilities? How what do you make of the range of of of, of formats, presentation well, scales? I know I've used this adjective already, but I, I have to say I, I felt that the show was really uneven. Um, I, I can't guess at her motivation for presenting all of the different kinds of things she did. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to read that. Um, but my, my own response to it critically was that 
um, that I, I, I thought some parts of it were much stronger and more, more compelling than others. Um, me personally, and I would be very interested to hear what, what others think about this, I, I preferred the, the, the paintings, um, uh, much, much preferred the, the paintings, which are sort of intriguing and in that they kind of feel like graffiti and that you have to kind of squint, you know that graffiti where you have to squint at the writing and to make out what word it's, it's, it's saying? Um, but they're kind of beautiful formally. I found them sort of compelling. Um, I, I was very uh, uh, disappointed by the installation, however. Um, I felt like I was immediately at the Bennington College Senior Art Show, and um, uh, the, you know there was this, this sort of the two projectors were um, covered in, in, in cardboard boxes, and, and the, the wire was, was covered in, in, in aluminum foil. I was just bewildered by the kind of um, tackiness and lack of care and craftsmanship that was put into the presentation, and 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 I mean, there were moments where I felt like, oh, it's I'm like, it's like I'm in one of her paintings, and that's kind of interesting. But I was actually distracted by the the kind of the poor quality of the construction of the of the installation, and then just mystified by the TV show montages of Wonder Woman. It's uh, Linda Carter doing her wind-up before she spins into becoming uh, Wonder Woman, and it's just the wind-up, though. I, yes. I, 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 I don't, the wind I, without I, the wonder. I, yes. I was just very mystified. Which was it's from the left, which ties into the mm. title left. Oh, and, and see, so, that's well, it's also, And it's that's also good. responding to a Dana yeah. Dornbaum piece that was, I think, in the Pictures Generation show yeah. with the Met. Um, and... Uh, in the way that the, the rappers respond to, oh, to that's each other. Oh, that's helpful. I didn't realize and, that. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, yes. I think, I mean, I, I did get this kind of, uh, um, you know, grad school thesis show mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. but and her student but, did help her, so there's okay. that, but, that aspect. <laughs> but, that's, but that's, you know, I mean, give her credit, because she, she was doing things like this 20 years ago, and it's not so much that the grad school kids can't, you know, tape down a, 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 a you know, a... a Chord properly. It's that it's that the aesthetic that McClellan, mm. among other people, has invented has uh, come to be adopted by certain sophisticates in art in a sort of the art uh, uh, pipeline. So, um, you know, she's. I, I think what's happening here with all of the different strategies to to distract you and to you know make you think about things that seem to have nothing to do with painting, uh, to lean paintings against walls, to um, to make you know, fragmentary works on pieces of drywall, and even maybe especially in the in paintings themselves, just seen as paintings, the way that she uses goopy, resinous plastics on top of these, mm. these you know, the, the oil paint, and then sort of dusts them with this dirty surface. You know, all of these are strategies that she, or let's say obstacles, that she puts <clears throat> in front of herself and the viewer because, uh, you know, her big problem is that she has an incredibly beautiful hand, mm -hmm. and she wants to make beautiful paintings, but she wants to make beautiful paintings that are not ingratiating, that, have, uh, that are political, that have content, that, are, that can be angry, uh, and that's the kind of beauty that she's interested in. And, and, and but like Modigliani sort of trying to draw with his foot to, to, to frustrate his own facility. Perhaps, and, uh, and yet she does allow her hand into this work, ultimately, mm -hmm. and, and just after I got past the smokescreen and after I began to digest some of the conceptual issues in play, 
Uh, and even as I'm looking at the slideshow, the, the, the beauty of the work has grown and grown on me. And there's yes. a couple of paintings that uh, are astonishingly beautiful. There's one called, um, well, maybe it's Roxanne Wars or something. Uh, but it was hung right next to the, to the gallery office, and, and, mm-hmm. it, and it was not, not, not well lit, uh, almost deliberately, almost provocatively so. But it, it, it could have hung next to a, a Victor Hugo um, experiment with uh, Fumage, yeah, with mm. pouring ink Off and page. making medieval gloomy castles and giant mm. monograms of his name floating in the sky yeah. in the same, you know, she does use words as objects uh, and, and she also makes these very beautiful spaces that you can fall into yeah. plus, the, plus the goopy part in this case you know, really looked like a, a wounded mm. limb out of an Otto Dix trench drawing. Right. And uh, I, I was surprised. I must confess, Karen, that your your complaint about the facture because this is, she's she's painterly, she's uh, informel, it's loose, but it seems to me uh, almost a fault. Almost, uh, she's consummately um, skillful, and it, it's a, it's a, yeah. an aesthetic decision to be uh, uh, goofy and pouring out. And of the it edges. didn't work. In the installation, with respect, I mean, I think the paintings are beautiful and they're like rich and right. they're lush and they're and yet they're gritty and they're right. they're both and that tension is is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I just you know when I plunked down to to sit in the installation, I just thought, oh. Do we mean specifically the the video installation against uh, and the and the drapery in the back room, or do you also include with installation the way that she's installed the front with those strange panels and the. The, the different hanging, different levels of hang. I was really thinking more of the former, the the right. little room with the the curtain right. and the yeah. Mm-hmm. But she yeah. she definitely has a sense of humor and irony. I mean, it, walking into the um, into the front hall is a uh, title of the show scrawled on a napkin. Yes. Um, to the left, propped up against the wall on the floor, is a bloated object, which turns out to be um, the abstract expressionist issue of Art Forum, which was left out in the rain um, and was so puffed up and swollen by water damage um, that it's assumed the status of a kind of sculpture, which she subsequently painted over an abex-like <laughs> gesture. So um, I, I think it's I think um, you're right to the extent that the show isn't sure whether or not it's a, it's a show of or about painting. Right. Um, well, why not just be a beautiful painter? I mean, it's almost like an apology, like, I, you know, some sort of apologetics of, you know, look, I'm really, I'm hip, I'm, you know, I can be, you know, I can make I, art out of, I think, know, I think that, crummy things. I think the skepticism about painting goes right down to, to every piece of, every piece of paint she puts on the canvas and it goes yeah. all the way up to how she thinks about installing an entire show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's through and through and, uh, well, you can't be an abstract expressionist painter in 2001 yeah, without being yeah. ironic, without right. being self-conscious, right? Or I mean, apologetic. it's or uh, I don't know if it's necessarily. I didn't get the sense that it was apologetic. Uh, it might be that she is self-effacing, um, as as some of you put it, that um, in terms of embarrassed almost at her own facility. Um, and uh, no, uh, can I just correct that for a second? I don't think she's. I think she's pushing it. She's finding a way to push it. Right. I, I felt that she... Um, uh, I respect Karen's decision that she's failed at it, but I, I saw her simply as... T- not simply. I saw her using the room in the classic installationist, a, a sort of positive installationist way, uh, using the room as her canvas uh, and, and, and seeking to do with each resolved, each 
quote-unquote resolved painting becomes like a brushstroke within the totality of the room. And um, whether... I, I was finding, finding myself, in a funny way, breaking my own cardinal principles. I was less concerned with local details as to whether it was working and more um, seduced, sucked in by the ambition of, of her having to want it. Hmm. want to make it work and so then I'm, I'm questioning for myself well why, why am I bending my rules because usually <laughs> usually I say I don't care what your ambition is let's look at the results and so in a way it's probably because of its um, intrinsic anti-formalism that um, one sort of does not I think profit the work doesn't profit by uh, a rigorous formal analysis as, as to whether it's working or not. It's instead just draws you into the energy of its own ambition. And she's smart enough to keep one step ahead of uh, any kind of formal, formal critique you could level at it, or conceptual critique. Mm. And, and she's, she's pushing that as well. Um, it might be interesting to think about what would happen if, if she was uh, taken on by Matthew Marx and given mm. access to the Louvre, or, you know, what the equivalent would be in access to their galleries to do an installation and she had 15 studio assistants to do whatever she wanted um, I don't know why I bring that up but it just seems like it's very all of the decisions even though she's generously giving credit for collaboration with her student she, all of the decisions in there are very personal and th that they really can't be delegated and that they're happening in front of you and they're happening as she's putting mm -hmm. leaning this thing against the wall over here and not over there mm -hmm. but let's try to answer Karen's basic question why uh, why does she have to be so... Why can't she just let her hair down and be a good painter, as it were? Um, I, I think she's too skeptical mm -hmm. about painting. Right. And deeply, a and deep, in a deeply rigorous, deep way. Mm. Skeptical because she's a feminist who listens to lots of rock music, or, or <laughs> a feminist, or, or, she, or skeptical because, it's, as Ara says, you can't just be a, an abstract expressionist now. But, I mean, funny enough, Ara, I mean, in a way, why can't we at this stage, by, by 2011, say you can't just be a postmodernist now? Because that's been going on, right. you know, only, that's been going on for three decades as opposed right. to being five decades old. Right. Comes to, there must come a historical moment where it's not necessarily that much more retro to be an abex painter than it would be to be a sort of postmodern um, ironist or hipster or deconstructor. But um, let's, on that note, bring in the audience for a, a final, some, some, some words. On, um, I, I see that some of you are needing to go for dinner. I don't blame you. I'm quite hungry myself. But uh, let's, let's, uh, have the, let's have some minutes of roving Mike. Um, and any comments on either of the shows we've been looking at, Katia Sanchez-Benez or um, Suzanne McClelland? Or do we want to discuss it in smaller groups over a glass of wine and dinner <laughs> out there in the great wide world? I don't think it's any poor reflection on Katya or Suzanne. On the contrary, it's a compliment to this evening's marvelous <laughs> panelists that uh, we have dealt with these shows and given you food for thought. Thank you very much. Have a great... What did you think of the mashup portrait?